The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Let's turn in our Bibles to Leviticus chapter 26. And if you don't have a Bible with you, um, there are black pew Bibles right in front of you underneath the chair. And uh, on that, uh, in that Bible, you can turn to page 98. Let's all stand, please. Leviticus chapter 26, and we're reading uh, verses 1 through 13. You shall not make idols for yourselves, or erect an image or pillar. And you shall not stand up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it. For I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace on the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept, and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people." I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. For I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. You may be seated. Well, as you just heard this morning, we are uh, in in Leviticus 26. We're looking at this chapter. These last two chapters really stitched together, and this is our last Sunday in the book of Leviticus. So, uh, you're survivors. You did it. You've made it through Leviticus. Um, It's been a phenomenal book. Um, I dare say what we've learned along the way is uh, instead of just calling this the book of Leviticus, we could almost call this the gospel according to Leviticus. Um, We've seen the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ um, in um, positive nooks and crannies of the Bible uh, that we just don't often assume that we will find the Lord Jesus Christ. If you remember way back when, when we started this, we said most of us, when it comes to working through our Bible reading plan, we usually hit Leviticus 1. We stumble into the first several verses and recognize there's a lot of blood, bulls, and goats, and then we do this. You know, you flip back in, ah, there's the book of Numbers, and then you find out that didn't really go so well because the first part of Numbers is a bunch of numbers and people, and so then you do that a little bit more, and then you finally start getting back to narrative. But my hope is that coming out of Hebrews which was the New Testament book we did before Leviticus. And we said we wanted to go to Leviticus because Leviticus is basically the Old Testament foundation for Hebrews that stitching these two together, what you have discovered is that Christ is Lord of all. He is there at the center of all things. 
And so now the book of Leviticus is landing. And what we're going to do is title our sermon this morning from Leviticus 26 as this, Either Or. It's the decision, Either Or. Main idea that we're going to see from this chapter comes down to this. It's talking about the posture of our hearts. Our posture concerning obedience to the Lord determines whether we experience blessing or cursing. We're going to see this as we work through Leviticus 26, and I think what we're also going to see is that this is not just an Old Testament idea. That it truly does matter what the attitude of our heart is, the posture of our heart, when it comes to walking in obedience to our Lord, the one who's redeemed us, saved us, And depending on how our heart posture is toward the Lord, especially our heart posture concerning obedience, it determines whether we will find lives, flourishing lives of blessing that flow from God our Redeemer, or if we will find the non-flourishing life. The life that the Leviticus 26 language is going to use is the life that will result in curses, things not going the way they were designed to go as the people of God. So what we're going to do is we're going to hit pause, we're going to pray, and then we're going to dive into this text to wade into these verses so that we can better understand why these verses ultimately point us to the Lord Jesus Christ as well. So let's pause, let's pray, and then let's get into God's Word. Father, as we wade into the text, we recognize something, that we're wading into Your revealed will for us. We want to know what You desire for us, what Your plan is for us. We do not have to second guess. We can open our Bibles. Before us, in Leviticus 26, we find practical, real, everyday, mattering things of your aim, purpose, desire for us. Moses was carried along by the Holy Spirit, and so what we have is our brother in Christ, empowered by the Spirit, giving us what we need for today. Help us to see this. Change us. For even already right now, our hearts are stony. Our hearts are second-guessing. Our hearts are already saying, I don't know that I need to hear this today. Lord, would you soften? Would you break our pride, would you humble us so that we might see that today is just like every day, in that today is the day that we need King Jesus more than we could ever possibly understand. Lord, help us for your name's sake and for your glory. Wow us with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. Well, here we are 
We're at the end of Leviticus. We're done. This is us sliding into home, if you want to use the baseball analogy, as we are looking in Leviticus 26. And if you remember, what we've said is that ever since we rolled into chapter 17, we rolled into the back half of this book. And the back half of this book has been something that we've called the holiness code. Because what you see is that this call for God's people to be a set-apart people, what does that look like in everyday life? What are just the practicalities of that? The back half of Leviticus has been all about these things. And ever since chapter 17 to where we are this morning looking at Leviticus 26, the Lord God, Yahweh himself, has been laying out these practical everyday commands for how the set-apartness of his holy people should invade all of life. Holiness is not a two hours on Sunday kind of thing. Holiness is not something that was just for those Old Testament people back then. Holiness is a 24-7, every nook and cranny of our lives, in every possible way that you can imagine. To be in Christ is to be set apart, and to be set apart is to be holy, and this holiness is to invade everywhere so that we can obey the command from Yahweh himself, be holy, I'm calling you, my people, to be holy as I am holy. Now the end has come. We're here at the end of Leviticus, and Yahweh is now turning to his people, and he's presenting his people with a choice. Either be faithful to him and experience the blessing that comes from walking in obedience to him, or to be unfaithful to him and experience the cursing that comes from unfaithfulness. In short, the path that is before the people of God, remember Leviticus is being addressed to the nation of Israel, the people of God who've been redeemed, pulled up out of slavery, delivered, and pulled into the promised land. Yahweh is looking at his people and he is saying, here's the path before you. It is either blessed obedience or it is cursed disobedience. So truly our posture, our main idea, this posture, our heart attitude concerning obedience to the Lord, it determines whether we find ourselves living a life underneath the blessing of God or underneath the cursing. And lest we think that all of this was like, yeah, 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 I get it. It was for those Old Testament people. It was for those people who were to walk by the law and the Ten Commandments and all that kind of stuff. I know my Bible well enough to know, yeah, there was always blessings for obedience to the law. and There's always cursings for disobedience to the law. This is just a very Old Testament kind of thing. This, this Leviticus 26, I'm sure it was good for them, but it's just a little bit too Old Testament. Lest, lest we find ourselves drifting there on the front end of our sermon this morning, what we need to remember is that this idea of heart attitude posture working itself out in the practical, tangible obediences of life is just a, an Old Testament thing. What we can do is hit pause and remember that the Lord Jesus Christ himself carried this very idea over and he laid it before his kingdom citizens, specifically in the Sermon on the Mount, when he's looking at these people that he's calling to himself. And he says, listen, not everyone, says Jesus, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
Everyone then, he continues, who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Jesus is even looking to his people saying to walk in obedience to me, to, for me to be your king means that our lives in our actions and in our thoughts will look like something. Lives of obedience. And that's where the good life is found. A life of blessing, walking in obedience to our king as we were created to do. You see, our decision daily, hourly, by minute and by second, to obey or disobey God in his commands, it truly is an either-or decision, is it not? When temptations come, the decisions to just walk in a way that's pleasing to Jesus, our lives are filled with either-or decisions. In this moment, as Charles said, either I am going to trust that God's plan is the best, or I will decide I am not going to trust and draw the conclusion I will not obey. And I'll walk in a manner, in a way that I think is best for me. Our decision to obey or disobey God and His commands is an either-or decision. And the invitation that is here in Leviticus 26 at the end of the book is the invitation to come and embrace faithful obedience to God and in turn experience the blessings that His people were created to enjoy. So where do we begin? We can begin by first recognizing this first point. That we choose either to worship God and keep His commandments or not. That's what we see in the first two verses here at the head of the chapter. That we choose daily, you could say, either to worship God, to fear Him, to walk in a way where our lives are keeping His commandments, or we do not. Look starting there in verse 1 in your copy of Scripture. Notice what the Word says. You shall not make idols for yourselves. Notice the worship language of verse 1. You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it. Why? For I am the Lord your God. Verse 2, you shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. This is, again, worship language. Why? Because I am the Lord. If you jump into the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, there's no name ascribed to it. Typically, we just refer to the one who's writing this book as the preacher. And the preacher draws his final conclusion when he works through all 12 chapters of searching out everything under the sun. If you want to think about it, what he's saying is, listen, can I truly find the blessed life, the good life apart from God? Can I find it in sex? Can I find it in money? Can I find it in power? Can I find it in work? Can I find it in ways that are of not of God? Can I find it in taking the path that I think will bring me these things? He comes all the way down through 12 chapters, lands the plane in verse 13, and the final conclusion the preacher draws at the end of Ecclesiastes is this, fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. 
Truly, I have sought this out, says the wise man. And I tried to be wise in my own eyes, and it truly led to me drawing the conclusion. I think a lot of stuff is just vanity when I try to walk this path. But here is where life is not vanity, where it's not vain. It's truly walking in a way where I'm fearing God, not cowering in the corner because we've got some vindictive, malevolent God in the sky who's just waiting to strike people down. But no, truly because I'm daring to trust God as God, that He is the Holy One, that He is good, and He is merciful, and He is kind, and He is patient, and He is steadfast in love. I'm going to order my life in such a way where I'm going to dare to treat Him as God. That's what fear of God looks like. And then the overflow of this, says the preacher, is I'm going to keep His commandments. Walk in a manner of obedience. And if you take that concept, that truth that the preacher preaches in Ecclesiastes, what you then can understand is that it is with similar thought that Moses is wrapping up the book of Leviticus here in chapter 26. In verse 1, to not make idols for yourself or erect an image or pillar and to not set up a figured stone or bound down to it. What is this? This is to say no to the world's way of worship. The world is consistently begging us to worship everything other than the one worthy of worship. Yes? None of us are neutral in worship. None of us wake up and are every, uh, uh, on Monday mornings and lift our head up off the pillow and go, you know what? I'm just not really going to worship anything today. It's impossible for us. It's hardwired in our spiritual DNA to be worshipers of something. If we're not worshiping Christ, we're worshiping not Christ. And there's a whole lot of not Christs around us in the world today. God knows this. He's not surprised by our worshiping hearts. He created us to be worshipers. And so he's calling us saying, listen, the blessed life that is submitted to my lordship looks like saying no to the world's way of worship and saying yes to me, the living God is the one true God who alone is worthy of worship. In other words, to listen to what Moses is saying in verse 1, it's this, it's choosing to walk in obedience in accord with the second commandment. If you notice, that's what that is. It's the second commandment out of 10, out of Exodus 20. You go to verse 2, he summarizes the rest by saying this, I'm calling you to keep my Sabbaths. Sabbath keeping, what is that? It's to keep, it's to obey the fourth commandment out of 10. In it all, God's commandments are an invitation to love Him above all else. The Apostle John in his first letter, chapter 5, says the commandments, the law of the Lord is not burdensome. Often though, we approach God's law like this. It's a duty. No life is going to be found here. There's no way what God calls me to be obedient to, and there's no way what He says... I should not be disobedient to these things he's saying. There's just no way life can be found here. But when we recognize that we work through the Old Testament, we see God's law before us, what we can recognize is this. When God says do this, when God says don't do this, as our Creator who is Lord of all, who knows all things, who knows how we were designed and what the end goal and the purpose of our lives are to be about, when He says do this or don't do this, when He builds these boundaries, these sort of sandbox lines and says, listen, play in the sandbox, you were created and designed to 
to do this, life and flourishing will be found here. But the moment that you transgress these boundaries and you rebel against these boundaries, life will not go the way that you hope it will go. We recognize that the commandments of God are an invitation to come and love Him above all else. And when we love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind and all of our strength, what do we discover? We discover there is truly blessing in obedience because we find ourselves living how we were created to live. Has anyone ever found themselves there before? Walking in a manner pleasing to the Lord, to borrow New Testament language, walking in a manner that is in line with the call of Christ on our lives. To walk in a manner that is in line with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's New Testament language. And when we find ourselves there, it's not wrong to say, I have found myself in the sweet spot. I have found myself in submission to the king like I was designed to be. And life has gone good. I'm not saying that there's never been any suffering. I'm not saying life has never been hard. It is possible to know extreme suffering and still be living a flourishing life. Do you guys understand this? And you guys ever been there before? Extremely hard circumstances, true and genuine suffering, physical or otherwise, but yet simultaneously in the moment being able to lift a word of praise to your king and saying, yet he is good and I know I am in his will because my life isn't a promise of no suffering. My life is the promise that, is that even in suffering in the valley of the shadow of death, he will be there with me. And that is what the good life looks like. That's the blessed life, knowing that my king is beside me every single step of the way. He never looks at any aspect of my life and says, that's a little too gross for me. That's a little too dark for me. That's a little too much suffering for me. That's a little too far beyond my reach. And so I'm not going to have anything to do with you. You will never find that area of your life. That's good. That's blessing found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Truly, when we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we discover there's truly blessing in the submission and devotion of our lives and obedience to Him because we're living how we are created to live. Now, I, I need to put a caveat here as we roll forward in these verses. It's important for you to hear me say this because it was important for me to remember this this past week myself. It's important to say that this chapter... Leviticus 26, it is not, it is not a manifesto for self-salvation. Because that's what, if you notice what he's saying, he's like, listen, look at verse 3. If you walk in my statutes, if you do this, if you do this, blessing will come. If you don't, if you don't, if you don't, cursing will come. It looks a lot like, well, God is telling me, go live a certain way and I'll get something out of them. Go live a certain way and I'll, I'll be on the receiving end of having earned a relationship with him, having earned some grace from him. So what we need to see is that that is the wrong way, the absolute wrong way to approach a chapter like Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26 is not a manifesto for self-salvation. Go be good, do some good stuff, and you will force God and to give you something you will have earned things from him. Works will equal a little bit of salvation there. That is not what's going on. This chapter, this chapter, and chapters like it in the Old Testament, they are sometimes read as though it were describing a merit-based relationship with God, as though a relationship with Yahweh can somehow be earned through obedience to His commands. 
But chapter 26 is not saying obedience earns grace from God, but rather obedience is born out of grace that's already been received. The obedience call upon the life of Old Testament Israel, the obedience call upon your life and my life is born out of grace that has been applied to our account. Free, unmerited, merciful favor of the living God shown towards us. How can I say this? Well, you just have to look at verse 13. Look what it says there in verse 13. Yahweh says to his people, listen, remember, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. What did we say several weeks ago? What we said was any time in the Old Testament you see the covenant name of God, Yahweh, I am, I am, the Lord, all caps, the Lord God. And then when you see it even further attached to this idea of I'm the one who brought you up out of Egypt, what do we say? This is, this is language of grace. This is mercy language. This is steadfast love language that's being spoken here. He's saying to his people, remember, I'm the Lord your God. I'm the one who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You didn't deliver yourself from slavery. You didn't deliver yourself from death. I graciously worked in your life so that you would not be slaves in Egypt. I am the one who broke the bars of your yoke. I am the one who made you walk erect. What is this? When you read this language, what is this? This is the language of redemption. This is the language of redemption. The language of gracious salvation from the God who delights to save. And it's in light of who God is. And it's in light of what God has done in saving sinners that we discover the only proper response to grace received is grace-fueled obedience. That's the proper response to grace received is to then in turn say, because of the way He has loved me, shown mercy to me, poured out grace upon me, I have received what I do not deserve. And so what it compels me to do is turn and walk in begrudging obedience. Man, I hate that He saved me. I guess I better obey Him. Well, he showed me such mercy. Man, it's such a duty to have to walk in obedience to him. No, it, it is grace-fueled obedience, not begrudging obedience. As sinners, think about your moment of salvation. As sinners who've sinned against a holy God, what we deserve is the just wrath of God for our rebellion against him. Yes, that is what we deserve. That would be justice. If justice were delivered to you and to me, i.e., if we got what we deserved for our sin, justice was delivered from a holy God, we would all be incinerated in a nanosecond. Because He is holy. And we are the most absolutely polar opposite of holiness in and of ourselves, apart from Christ. The sinners who've sinned against a holy God, what we deserve is the just wrath of God for our rebellion against Him and our sin. But the good news of the gospel is that sinners who deserve God's just wrath 
can be saved by God's free grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And when that happens, when a man or when a woman comes to know the free grace of a sovereign God who doesn't give us justice, but gives us mercy and gives us grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, free grace received will result in devoted obedience to the one who has saved us. There's a story that's told from the Civil War days before America's slaves were freed. And this story is about a northerner who went to a slave auction and purchased a young slave girl. As they were walking away from the auction, the man turns to the young girl and says to her, You are free. You are free. With amazement, she looks to the man and she responds, you mean, you mean you're telling me I'm free to do whatever I want? Yes, he says. And you're telling me I'm free to say whatever I want to say? Yes, anything, said the man. And you're telling me I'm free to be whatever I want to be? Yes. And free even to go wherever I want to go? Yes, he answered with a smile. You are free to go wherever you would like. So she looked at him and intently replied, then I'm going to go with you. I'm going to go with you. You see, for the young girl, grace received was not an excuse for disobedience. She was the recipient of grace. She had done nothing to earn being delivered from physical slavery. She had done nothing to earn the money spent in order to redeem her out of what would have been death for her. She was the recipient of unmerited favor and the recipient of grace. What she did not do was say, well, then I'm going to make a decision to lean in on myself and live for myself and go nuts and really just walk in absolute, outright disobedience to you. No, grace received as she stood there in that either-or decision led her to not give excuses and say, forget you, I'm going to do whatever I want to do, but free grace received compelled her to freely give herself to the one who showed grace so freely to her. And that's the way it is with the Lord Jesus Christ, yes? In that little story, in that little illustration, you, me, were the slave girl. We were in bondage to the slavery of sin, to the slavery of death, to the slavery of hell, to the slavery of Satan. We were citizens in His dark kingdom. Jesus comes. He gives us of Himself redeems, pays the necessary price so that you and I can be redeemed and pulled out of slavery. And there we are, like in Leviticus 26, the Old Testament people, or like in the story, or like you and I have experienced when we come to the place to say free grace has been applied to my account. Mercy untold has been shown to me by the Lord Jesus Christ. What we see in the Scriptures is that what is born out of free grace received are hearts that say to the Lord Jesus Christ, then I'm going to go with you. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to obey you. You have given me everything. And it's not a duty to walk in obedience to you. It is actually pure and absolute delight because what else would I do? Where else am I going to go? He's the one who gave everything for me. 
And it's almost like grace and redemption. If you want to personify it, what it does is it grows arms and it reaches down within us and it turns something on and it pulls out of us, not the uh, foot dragon. Man, I hate that I have to be obedient to the one who was so free in grace to me. Something switched in us. And now all of a sudden, the call to walk in obedience is no longer begrudging duty but it is joy-filled delight to walk in this way. See, it's at this point in this story that we just talked about that it perfectly illustrates what's going on in Leviticus 26. God has delivered His people from death and slavery by His free grace. And like the young girl, there's an either-or decision to be made. On one hand, point number two, Either choose to be faithful to God and experience His blessing. That's one choice on one hand. In a nutshell, verses 3 through 13, if you just want to summarize it, it's all about the promised blessings God would pour out on His people if. That's the key word there, if, in verse 3. Look at, look at your Bible. Verse 3, if you walk in my statutes and if you observe my commandments and if you do them, then blessing would be their experience. Remember, this is not him saying, if you do this, you will earn something from me. He's just simply saying, listen, as you go about your days in response to the free grace received, when you choose to walk in obedience to me, when your life's decisions are centered on the Redeemer, you need to know this is a blessed life. Blessing is found here in walking in obedience to me. What kind of Blessings were there. It was the promises of physical provision, physical protection. Verses 4 and 5, it was the promise of abundant harvest. Verses 6 through 8, it was the promise of peace in the land. Verses 9 and 10, it was the promise of fruitfulness of womb, fruitfulness of crops. But notice in verses 11 and 12, there's something more than just physical blessings being promised here. There was this promised spiritual blessing of Yahweh's presence with His very people, which is the blessing that surpasses all blessings, yes? More than the physical things of this world, the spiritual blessing of knowing I am His and He is mine. He is my God and I am counted among His people. This is the blessing par excellence. It's the one above all things to be able to say my God walks with me. He knows me. I am His and He is mine. Verse 11, that's the language there. Notice what he says. Here's the spiritual blessing that will be the blessing above all blessings. I, the Lord God, will make my dwelling with you. And my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you. And I will be your God. And you shall be my people. This is the climax of all blessings. The summary point is this. The promised blessing in Leviticus 26, it's nothing less than a return to the Garden of Eden. It's a return to Eden. Remember what Eden was like pre-fall. Genesis 1 and 2. Eden was the place where the intimacy of Adam and Eve's relationship with Yahweh, that was their blessing. With God. Intimate relationship. The blessing of Yahweh walking among His people just 
as he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. He's saying, when you respond to grace in obedience to me, joy-filled delight of devotion, submission, obedience to me, what you need to know is you're getting a little taste of the garden. You're getting a little taste of what's to come. We're going back to the garden. We're going back to what it once was. Genesis 1 and 2 finds its recreation in Revelation 21 and 22. We're going back to this place. We're going to the place where we will be able to be with the Lord Jesus Christ face to face, no longer walking by faith, but walking by sight. And we're going to get to experience the promised blessing of verses 11 and 12. We get a little foretaste of it here. Now we're going to see it fully in verses 11 and 12, garden blessing, Eden blessing. He says, this is the blessing that can be yours by walking in obedience. But as we know, there are ways to spurn God's grace. Ever find yourself there before? Saying, I know my Redeemer. I know my Savior lives. I know what He's done for me. But in that moment, in that decision, there is a conscious decision made to say, yet I will not walk in obedience to him. Yeah? There is a way to spurn God's grace, ways to treat his unmerited favor lightly and use it as an excuse for our, for our disobedience. I've been pastoring long enough to know that the way Paul wraps up the end of Romans 5 and rolls into Romans 6 is just not theory. How does he wrap up Romans 5? He says, hey, when sin was really big, grace abounded all the more. And then he rolls into Romans 6 and he says, but don't, but don't think that we should just go and sin like hell then because we're going to get a lot of grace. He says, if you do that, you haven't understood the gospel. I've seen it before. I've counseled it before. There is a way to spurn God's grace where a decision lies before someone in Christ. I'm talking about New Testament men and women that I've counseled and talked to before where they say, they've used this language. I know that this decision is not the best for me. I know this decision is not what Christ would have me do, but there's grace for sin, is there not? And whoop, and they step off right into it. What you're doing in that moment is true. There's truth mixed in there. It's true. You can't outstrip grace, but there is a way to spurn grace, to abuse grace, to say, I'm just going to live like hell because there's always going to be grace on the end anyways, isn't there not? And Paul says, don't walk that path. That is not the path of blessing. So while we can choose to be faithful to God and experience His blessing, there is another choice that can be made. And if you know your Old Testament, if you know the history of Israel, then you know that the people, the Old Testament people of God, they often chose to be unfaithful to God and as a result experienced His cursing. That's the either-or decision there. If you look at verses 14 through 39, basically the back, back part of the chapter, what is Moses doing? He's recording the cursing that would happen to God's people if they were unfaithful to him. And in the words of one commentator, verses 14 through 39 are a comprehensive catalog of calamities, said that commentator. A comprehensive catalog of calamities. Now, simple observation reveals that the promised curses for disobedience are a lot longer than the promised blessings for obedience. 3 through 13, blessing. 14 through 39, cursing. 
But don't look at the lopsided nature of this long list of curses and think that this implies something, that Yahweh was eager to bring these curses on his people. Looking at verse 14, notice the curses would come only if you will not listen to me and if you will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant. So don't think of these curses. Don't think of 14 through 39 as the petty acts of anger from a maleficent deity. Like he's just up in the heavens jonesing to smite people with these curses. Because he's just hardwired this way. Instead, think of 14 through 39. Think of these verses as what they are. They are merciful warnings from a loving God who does not want his people to rebel against him. Why? Because his desire is for them to know the blessing they were created to know. And he's simply doing what a loving father does to his child. He's saying, listen, if you go this path, I know you've got a decision before you, little child. I know I've told you, do this. I know that this is the best for you, but you can either choose to trust daddy right now and walk in this way, or you can say, no, dad, I'm going to do what I want to do, and I'm going to go my own way, but I'm begging you, if you go this way, there's going to be a cursed life over here. This is not going to go good for you. There's going to be things that happen to you that you can't see, but I'm giving you these cursings, these warnings, little one, because I don't want you to go this route. Why? Because my heart is for you to know the blessing of living in submission to your daddy. It's not a hard concept for us to grasp from parent to child. It's the exact same concept that's being laid out here. The heavenly father is laying out the life of cursed. And he's saying, I'm giving you this, not because I'm just jonesing to do it, but because I'm warning you, I don't want you to do this. You were not created to experience these things. We were instead created to obey the Lord and enjoy the rich blessings that come from fellowship with Him, not to turn from Him and experience His justice against our rebellion. So in love, Yahweh graciously extends the invitation to walk in blessed obedience. But what His people need to know, what you need to know, what I need to know, is that if they choose to abandon God's word, that if they choose to turn from Yahweh's ways, then they are choosing to call down these curses on themselves. They're choosing this path. What kind of curses? If you didn't get a chance to read it ahead of time, it's not pretty. They'd be curses that increase with intensity if the people were to continue hardened in heart and disobedience. After each act of discipline, the people had opportunity to turn from their sin. What you need to know is this, is that it's almost like it just keeps increasing in intensity because Yahweh says, I'm bringing this to you so that you would hear it, heed it, and stop and turn back. Repent. But if you keep going forward, something else is going to come. And the hope is that you would heed this, stop, repent, and turn back. But if you keep going forward from there, I'm going to bring this in order that you would stop. This discipline would bring you to see that you're walking in sin so that you'd repent and turn back. He does it a fourth time, and then he does it a fifth time. And after each act of discipline, the people had opportunity to turn from sin. But if they continued to be unfaithful, God's disciplinary judgment would grow more and more severe. At first, it was the promised curse of disease and enemy invasion. That's verses 16 and 17. But notice verse 18. 
if in spite of this, you will not listen to me. So you see it there. I'm going to discipline in you this way as a father disciplines their child. But if in spite of this, you go, you know what? I'm just not going to listen to God still. Then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. This time, it would be with failure of their harvest, verse 20. But if that discipline was snubbed, and then you begin to walk contrary to me and will not listen to me. So notice that while the intensity of the discipline is increasing, what is also increasing as you work through the back half of this chapter is the hardness of heart is increasing on behalf of the people who keep saying, I know God, but I'm going to do what I want to do. I know God, but I'm going to do this. I know God, but I'm going to walk in this way. And if you notice there in verse 20, that walk language begins to show up for the remainder of the curses. If you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me. That is, if you keep walking in this path, decidedly choosing this path, committing yourself to choose the path of disobedience, continually saying, I know God, but I don't want you. I know God, but I want what I want. I know God, but I'm going to go this path. What God says is this to the people then, at least, here is another act of discipline. Wild beasts are going to come and attack their children. And if by this discipline, he continues, you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then the intensity ramps up and he says, then I am going to walk contrary to you. I'm going to send war. I'm going to send pestilence. I'm going to send famine. But then comes the crescendo of the curses in verse 27. But if in spite of this, if in the first discipline didn't do it, the second discipline didn't do it, the third discipline didn't do it, the fourth discipline didn't do it, then here's what's going to happen. In spite of this, you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me. Then I will walk contrary to you. Notice the last two words, in fury. This fifth curse was the worst because Israel's cities would then be besieged. You see that there in the verses besieged by foreign armies until they ran out of food and the only source of food was human beings. They would resort to cannibalism. It says that there in the verses. Which, by the way, actually did happen. If you haven't figured it out yet, if you go and read about the exile accounts, every single one of these things happened to the people. To the point where in one of the king's accounts, I think it's Second Kings, it talks about how the city was um, being surrounded and being besieged and the king is walking on the wall, completely unable to figure out what to do. And people come to complain to him because two mothers made a deal because they were so lacking for food that they said, let's boil our children and eat them. And one mom said, I'll go first. They did that. And then the other mom said, yeah, actually, I'm not going to do that to my kid. That was the depravity depths that they had spiraled out to because they were not walking in the ways of God. It's sick. Sin is sick. It's insidious. Cities destroyed, ultimately being carried into exile, which is what happened. In short, where the promised blessings we said earlier are nothing less than a return to Eden, what we see here at the end of verse 39 is this. The promised curses are nothing less than the promise of a living hell. But notice verse 40. Notice verse 40. Notice that as you roll out of the curses into those last couple of verses there at the chapter, notice that just when we expect the curtain to fall, 
just at the end of verse 39, when you're like, surely this is it. There can't be any good news beyond this. Just when we expect the curtain to fall, God says his mercy is not finished in verse 40. Long after you'd think that the holy God of Israel would have abandoned his rebellious people, we discover that the disobedient unfaithfulness of God's people has not outstripped the grace of Yahweh. Praise God. Isn't it not good news in our own lives where we found ourselves continuing to walk in disobedience, to walk in unfaithfulness, that we have not outstripped God's grace in our own lives? You see, it's these verses, these remaining verses of Leviticus 26 that give any and every sinner cause to rejoice for it's these verses are the gospel backbone that stirs our hearts to sing songs like we sing at Delta. What love could remember? No wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. How's it go? Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. See, those aren't just words cleverly put together to rhyme so we could have something to do for 20 minutes on the front end of a, of a worship service. Those words are born directly out of verses like what we find here at the end of Leviticus 26. What love could remember? Yahweh is choosing to remember something in these verses. How could he remember no wrongs we have done? I look at the man and the woman in the mirror, and what I see is I have done wrong against him. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knows what I've done, but you're telling me he's making the decision to count not the sum of all these things? You're telling me he's thrown them into a sea? You're telling me he's done this into a sea that has no bottom, no shore? There's no more record of this in the ledger of my soul? Why? Because our sins, though, they are many. His mercy is more. More. Always outstripping where we are. Do you see this in verses 40 through 45? Look at verse 40. In verse 40 he says, but if they confess their iniquity. So here's confession of sin. Verses 41 and 42. And if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then here's what I'm going to remember. My love is not going to remember wrongs done, but here's what I'm going to remember towards my people. I will remember my covenant with Jacob. Verse 43, yes, yes, says Yahweh, I know they have spurned my rules, and I know their soul abhorred my statutes, yet for all that, verse 44, yet for all that I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. Why? Why such mercy given for sin? Why such grace displayed for obedience? Answer in verse 44, because I am the Lord their God. Period, full stop, that's the answer. Because I am your God. And what kind of God is he? He is the God who is merciful. He is the God who is gracious. He is the God who is slow to anger. He is the God who is abounding in steadfast love. He is the God who abounds in faithfulness. He is the God who keeps steadfast love for thousands. He is the God who forgives iniquity. He is the God who forgives transgression. He is the God who forgives sin. This is why I'm operating towards you. That your sin receives mercy. 
That your disobedience and unfaithfulness finds grace. Now, when Israel was unfaithful to God's covenant and disobeyed God's law, did they experience the curses described in Leviticus 26? Did they or did they not? They did. They did. They experienced God's judgment for their sin. And the plain fact, brothers and sisters, the plain fact is this. Like Israel, we too have disobeyed God's law. We too have sinned. We too, like sheep, have all gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And as a result, we are the ones who deserve the curse that comes as a result of our own unfaithful lawfulness against God. Truly, says the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, everyone, everyone, everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is what? Cursed. Cursed. So the question is, how do unfaithful, how do disobedient, how do curse-deserving sinners instead find themselves blessed by God? How? How is this even possible? The answer has everything to do with the gospel of the cross. For, says Paul, to the Galatian Christians, at the cross, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How did Christ redeem us from the curse of the law? By becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That's you and that's me. Notice the curse blessing language here in this verse. The curse of the law. That's the curse I deserve. The curse that is written For everyone who is hanged on a tree, they are cursed. But Christ goes to the tree, he is pinned to the cross, and there he is suspended in the air, receiving the curse that he did not deserve, so that we might receive the blessing we did not deserve. And there is the great exchange of the gospel. And so now it can be said of this, those who deserve the curse, that's you and that's me for sinning against a holy God, what we find is that Jesus has redeemed us from the curse of the law because he went to the cross and he bore that curse for us so that instead of cursing, we might step before holy God and receive what? Blessing blessing. What kind of blessing? Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 through 15 lays out blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing. The blessing of salvation, the blessing of adoption, the blessing of eternal inheritance, the blessing of eternal life, the blessing of the Holy Spirit, the blessing of the guarantee, the blessing of an inheritance, these are the blessings that come to you because Christ bore the curse in our place. Friends, in Christ Jesus, God's blessings are for those who have faith in Jesus. And maybe you're here this morning and the eternal either-or choice is before you yet. Where either you come to Jesus and receive eternal life in Him alone or you turn from Him to eternal destruction for your soul. 
And my hope is that at the end of Leviticus, the gospel of Leviticus would lead you to not delay and would instead compel you to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus today for the salvation that can be found in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Praise God for his word. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, it's in your name that we come. It's in your name that we confess our need for you. We confess our need for you. Lord, would you show us just how much we need you right now? I think sometimes we can be deceived. I know my own heart can be deceived. Unable to see, numb to the reality of how much I need Jesus. Not all those other people out there, not my spouse, not my neighbor, not my coworker, but me, myself, the person in the mirror. That person needs Jesus. Every minute, every hour, every day. So Lord Jesus, show us our deep-seated need so that we would then come, confess, humble ourselves before you and find the healing and the purification for the sin that we have committed by being reminded of how we are washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. Lord, would you help us to experience the felt forgiveness of the Savior who has given his life so that the curse we deserve, he owns, and the blessing he owns becomes ours. Lord Jesus, help us. It's in your name I pray these things. Amen.